exact translation, but uh, hopefully it uh, connected with you. You were able to follow along with what you were familiar, the familiar wording. And uh, we're, we're going to be talking today about um, shepherds, about Jesus as the good shepherd. But our, our lesson today begins in Ezekiel 34. And uh, I, I know that that's not an exciting place to begin a sermon. <laughs> You're like, Ezekiel 34, what's in Ezekiel 34? Um, but we'll, we'll, I'll tell you. Here, uh, Ezekiel gets a word from God. And so we pick it up, Just we're just going to read the first couple of verses at this point. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? Now, that's the beginning of a long chapter. And through the prophet Ezekiel, God gives a harsh critique of the leaders, the king, and other leaders of Israel. Even though Ezekiel is in exile, Jerusalem has been defeated, and there, there are still leaders there, and this is also a reflection not just on them, but also on those who'd been leaders uh, at the time of the, the conquest. And, and the wording here is interesting because they're called, the leaders are called shepherds because they're supposed to be leading and caring for the people the sheep of israel but they've failed and so as you read down through the chapter what we find is that uh, because the the political leaders because the kings have failed in their responsibility not only to god but to their people because of that God is going to get rid of them, and God is going to take over. He will go back to being their king. You might remember way back in history when Samuel uh, was a, a judge over Israel. The people came to him and said, we want a king like the nations. And Samuel said, well, but God is your king. And they said, that's all right. That's good. We want a God, but we also want a king. And, um, and now God says, I'm going to be, he doesn't say king, he says, I'm going to be the shepherd that my people need. And you can keep reading, I encourage you to make that a, um, a to do, put it on your to-do list this week, is to read down through Ezekiel 34. But this image of um, a king as a shepherd is not unique to Israel. It's a, uh, an ancient image uh, that was common in those times. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence that after the, the failed kingship of Saul, that God's next appointee as king is a shepherd, David. That David was able to take his um, 
everything he had learned, his experiences, his understanding, his compassion, um, his, his um, protective instincts, to take all of that from the field into the throne. And so I, I think there's a, an intentional choice there. In fact, in Ezekiel 34, if you keep reading, you'll come to verses 23 and 24. And in these verses, God promises not only that he will be the king over them, the shepherd over the people, but I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. If we were just reading through Ezekiel and going to spend the whole morning there, uh, this would be a, a little confusing because God has spent quite a bit of time saying, I'm going to be the shepherd. And then at this point he says, David is going to be the shepherd. Hopefully by the end of this morning you'll see how you might be able to make sense of these two people being the this, having the same job. But this was regarded very early on, this passage the, in verses 23 and 24, as a messianic prophecy. That as the Jews read through all the prophets, they would look at some of the statements that were made and they would say, that one was never fulfilled. That one is referencing somebody who is still to come in the future. And, and, and that person that anointed one of God, by God, is the Messiah. And so the David that Ezekiel refers to here will be the Messiah. Now I want you to notice how political this prophecy is. Okay? Um, Ezekiel is not just preaching to his church. He's calling out the leaders of the nation. Now, he's in Babylon. He's calling out the leaders of the nation in Jerusalem. But you can't uh, criticize political leaders and say that they're going to be replaced uh, without there being a, a very uh, strong opposition, political opposition. To you, That kind of talk will get you in trouble in pretty much any day and age. And so when Jesus stands in front of the Pharisees in John chapter 10, and he declares, I am the good shepherd, almost certainly they heard that as a political announcement, first and foremost. Jesus was saying, the current political leaders... And the ones that have gone before me, all of those that have gone before me, they're, they're thieves and robbers. And I am the good shepherd. Jesus never actually said the words, I am God. He never said the words, I am the Messiah. Because he knew that making that kind of statement, uh, the crowds would Focus on that. That would be the only thing that they heard. And Jesus has so much to say beyond that. But nonetheless, his identity was important. In John chapter 10 and verse 24. Now, if you have your Bible there, you'll see that there's a, a break in between. Um, 
in verse 22, it says, Then came the festival of dedication. We know that as Hanukkah. Okay? Hanukkah is in December. Um, we have previously, in previous weeks, been talking about Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is in September, October. So between verse uh, 21 and verse 22, there's about two to three months in, in time even though the conversation seems to flow continuously. But in, in chapter 10 and verse 24, the Jewish leaders ask him, they say, can you speak to us plainly, answer plainly, are you the Messiah? Jesus basically shakes his head and says to them, haven't you been paying attention to anything that's going on around you? Specifically, he says, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And then jumping down to verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Now, it's important to notice that this interaction takes place at Hanukkah. Um, Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, marks the, the, the occasion of the overthrow of foreign leaders, of foreign uh, governments. It, it was specifically the Persian leader, um, Persian? Greek the Greek leader Antiochus. And uh, he had defiled the temple. And so the Jewish uh, people rose up behind Judah Maccabee. And they eventually uh, evicted these foreign troops from, from Jerusalem, from their land. And for about 100 years, they ruled, they celebrated uh, their, their independence before eventually they allied with Rome, and then Rome came and, and made them a province. And so Hanukkah celebrates the reopening, the, of the rededication of the temple. After the Antiochus had defiled it, they purified it, they took control of it, they purified it, and, and then there's the legend behind it of the um, lamp, the, the menorah that... Um, kept burning for, for well, whatever it was, the seven days. I, I forget the details. And, and that menorah becomes the, the centerpiece of Hanukkah today, even till today. So think about this. The festival is about overthrowing foreign um, armies, foreign rulers, and establishing your own. The Romans are in charge at the time of Jesus. And so around Hanukkah, you can imagine, they're happy to let the Jews celebrate this event of 100 years ago where they overthrew, they rebelled against you know, their foreign overlords and established their own rulers. But they're keeping an eye on things. They're not wanting anybody to take it too seriously to think that they could possibly do it again. And, and that Hanukkah becomes not just a festival reminding them of what had happened in the past, but a reason to rebel 
and attempt to overthrow the Romans in the present. So, when the Jews come to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, tell us plainly, are you that king that's been promised, who's going to rise up and restore Israel? Tell us in plain words, so that we can go and tell the Romans that you just said this. Well, they didn't express that last part out loud. But that seems to be what's going on in this situation. But here are the two takeaways from Jesus' response, from Jesus' um, answer to them. The first is that Jesus has already uh, answered the question of whether he's the Messiah. I think we can go back one slide. Thanks, Ernest. Um, he's already answered the question of whether he's the Messiah. Now, you can think in your mind, when did he do that? If Jesus never said, I am the Messiah, when did he do that? Because he told them he has. And number two is this point that he and his father are one. Uh, that is also very significant because the Jews have a confession that they make uh, that the Lord, our Lord, is one. And so for Jesus to come along and say, God and I are one, that is um, tantamount to blasphemy. Because there's only one God, and he is one. And Jesus says, no, I and the Father are one. And so uh, it's perhaps not surprising that by the end of the chapter, the Jews are wanting to pick up stones and, and kill him there on the spot. So when did Jesus answer this question of whether or not he's the Messiah? We could perhaps, John certainly answers it right back in John chapter 1, verse 1. But um, for, for our, our point, we could say Jesus maybe answered it when he said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. Perhaps he answered it when he said, I am the gate. I think in this context, he at least certainly answered it when he said, I am the good shepherd he says this in contrast to the bad shepherds in the first and we read last week verses 1 through 10 and in that passage there he describes the thieves and the robbers that want to get into the pen and steal the sheep he, he now in our reading he describes the hired hands who take off at the slightest hint of danger, and, and, uh, or the wolves that want to come in and, and attack the sheep. And, and he describes all these threats in this passage, but he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the one you've been waiting and you've been looking for. And if you Jews, if you choose to see everything that I've done, all the miracles, if you hear all of my teaching, and your conclusion is that I'm demon-possessed, then that's your problem. It's not because I haven't given you enough evidence. That's the hardness of your heart. And so I suspect we often underestimate how politically subversive Jesus was within his culture. We may know now that Jesus never intended to raise an army to overthrow the Romans. But at the very least, 
Jesus was seeking for his followers to give their primary allegiance to him. Not to the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the Republicans or the Democrats. Not to the religious institutions, not to the synagogue, not even to the temple or the Presbyterians or even the Church of Christ. He says, your primary allegiance is to follow me. And those organizations, those institutions, they're, they're made up of people that are made up of mistakes. You can't get perfect institutions that are constructed by people that make mistakes, that do things wrong. He says, I am the good shepherd. And so, as the good shepherd, Jesus exemplifies what good leadership looks like. And in a moment, I'll give you three ways that Jesus is the good shepherd. But first, I want to just clarify this word, good. I think that we might hear that, and the way that we usually use it is something tastes good. Or a good child is one who behaves themselves. So perhaps we, we hear that Jesus is the good shepherd and we think, oh, Jesus is well-behaved. He's the well-behaved shepherd. Um, or maybe Jesus is the I-don't-cause-any-trouble shepherd. Okay? Or I'm not a bad shepherd. But the word good here, the, the Greek, the authors when they wrote had a choice of several Greek words and the one they chose has um, a sense of attraction to it. Okay? So it's not just morally good but it's, it's beautiful, it's, it's attractive. We can even go so far as to say it sets a standard. And so Jesus as the good shepherd sets a standard against which all other shepherds can be measured. All other expectations can be set. Now, if you're a church leader, that's a little intimidating, right? Because um, you go, I'm not going to meet up to, to that. Not, not all the time. Maybe seldom. Um, but, but we try. But whether it's a church leader, a political leader, there are values that Jesus exemplifies as a shepherd that he is saying the thieves and the robbers out there should be um, imitating. This is how they're going to be measured and to be judged. And so the first evidence that Jesus gives that he is the good shepherd is found in verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now, I don't know about you, but, but um, I actually relate to the hired hand that Jesus has mentioned earlier. Okay? Because if it comes down to a lion, a sheep, and me, okay, that lion can take that sheep. Right? I'm heading out the door. Right? Like, have lunch? Do you want some barbecue sauce with that, Mr. Lion? Like, what can I do for you? Um, because... In my value system, that sheep's life is less valuable than my life. All right? Um, and, and so Jesus, though, is a better person than I am. No big surprise there. And 
he says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. One author I read this week made this observation. He said the best explanation of why Jesus needed to die. I, find, I still find that a, a difficult question many times. Why did it have to be that way? He says, the best explanation of why Jesus needed to die is found not in heavy volumes of abstract theology, but in this very parable. This very down-to-earth picture of the shepherd and the sheep. The sheep are facing danger. The shepherd will go to meet the danger. And if necessary, he will take upon himself the fate that would otherwise befall the sheep. In Jesus' case, it was necessary, and he did do it. He laid down his life for his sheep. When Jesus uttered those words, it was really the beginning in John's Gospel of looking forward to what lay ahead for him. The crowd didn't really understand it. They, they would have said, had a reaction a bit like me, well, that's all fine, that's, that's good to say. That's good for a campaign stump speech, Jesus. But if you're not going to follow through and do it, that's not going to mean much. Um, from where we sit, that statement means so much more, doesn't it? The, the second way that Jesus describes himself as the shepherd, the good shepherd, he reiterates, um, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. We talked about this quite a bit last week. Last week we said, we talked about the voice and how they know the voice. Okay? But look what Jesus, how Jesus goes on and adds to it this time. He says, just as the Father knows me, and I know if you thought comparing the shepherds of the church to the good shepherd Jesus was a tough comparison, then let me make another tough comparison for all of us. That Jesus wants us to know him in the same way that he knows the Father and the Father knows him. It's not even possible, is it? If the Father and the Son are one, as Jesus is going to say in just a moment, how can we possibly be that close to Jesus? And yet, he says, this is what I want. This is the kind of knowledge I want between me as the good shepherd and you as my sheep. And I think it challenges us to examine ourselves and to ask this question and say, do I actually want that kind of relationship with Jesus? Do I want that kind of relationship with Jesus? Or am I okay recognizing Jesus from a distance? Yeah, I know what Jesus looks like. I can see him over there. Are we okay with knowing the basic facts? I know what happens at Christmas. I know about the miracles and the stories. I know what happens at, at Easter. Uh, I think I got that down. Love everyone. Be nice. Don't judge. I'm good to go. Like, when Jesus says, 
I want my sheep to know me as I know the Father and the Father knows me. Like that's tight. That's not just recognizing someone from a distance. That's knowing the temperature, their favorite temperature for their oatmeal and their coffee every morning. And using a thermometer to make sure you get it right. I mean, that's, that's knowing what Jesus is thinking. And, and even if we, we say that's unattainable, the question is still, is that something that we want? Or do we want to be able to live our lives our way without getting a brain transplant? Without having Jesus too much inside our head? I know my sheep. My sheep know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. It kind of sounds warm and fuzzy sometimes for Jesus to be our good shepherd. But other times, that's a pretty challenging um, expectation for us. And then the third way we know that Jesus is our good shepherd is that he promises not just overnight safety in the sheep pen. He doesn't just promise to walk out on the hills with us and be there during the day and find us food and water and, and provide for our basic needs. Jesus says in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So, there's kind of a sequence here. Um, we might could rearrange it different ways, but, but Jesus dies for his sheep. Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know him. And because of that, because of that knowledge, then the sheep receive eternal life. Eternal safety, we might think of. And this salvation is a gift we're told that no one can take from us. No one else can take away what Jesus gives us. And, and we can be confident in that, not just because Jesus says those words. Right? Jesus says, no one can take them out of my hand. Well, that's impressive. But if you're listening to this and you go, well, Jesus, you're a prophet. I think I could kidnap anyone here and take them wherever I want and you wouldn't have them anymore. You're a prophet, you're a teacher, you're a rabbi, you're a good man, you know, you're respected, but to say that no one can take anyone out of your hand, that seems like an overstatement because I'm pretty sure I could. And so Jesus continues on, and if you keep reading just a couple of verses later, he describes his relationship with the Father. He says, and no one, just as no one can take them out of my father's hands well now we're talking about god nobody's going to try and take anything out of god's hand right we recognize the futility of that and so jesus says because the father and i are one you try to take someone out of my hands or someone tries to take you out of my hand they're taking trying to take you out of god's hand and so I can promise you that that eternal life that I'm offering is life that no one can take away from you. That's between you and me. You want it, you, you follow me, you get to know me, 
and, and you experience, you look forward to that gift of eternal life. You've got no one to blame but yourself because no one can take you from me. I think it's easy to look at these I am statements, whether it be bread or light, a gate or the sheep, and, and say, you know, Jesus was a gifted communicator to use these word images. He didn't have PowerPoint slides back then. And so instead of PowerPoint slides or, or drawings on a sheet, diagrams on a sheet that he carried around with him, he had these word images. And he could pull out this little sermon ready to go at any time. I am the fill in the blank. And, and then he's got a sermon. He's got a teaching. And people are able to leave and think about it. It's a great communication tool. And so, but, but they are more than just communi- for communication. You see, if we were just to use it for communication, we'd say, well, that's interesting. But if you push it too far, it doesn't work. It starts to break down. It, you know, it, it seeks, teaches one point, but maybe it's not perfectly applicable in another point. And, and I think that's the case with many of Jesus' parables. But with this one, Jesus takes it seriously. When he says, I'm the good shepherd, he's not just telling a story about seed growing in the ground to teach something. He's talking about who he is. And more than that, he's saying, I know because I am the good shepherd, because I am the person that Ezekiel prophesied about, because that's me, I am going to lay down my life for the sheep. This was something that, a a picture, an image that he was staking his life upon. He's willing to die to protect the sheep. He's willing to die to protect you and to protect me. And he does this because he knows you. I want you to think about that. He does this because he knows you. How many of us at some point in our life have uh, had the thought, maybe it's just raced through our mind, maybe it's something we've dwelled on for a long time, that if Jesus really knew me, if the church really knew me, if, if people really knew me, if someone really knew me, He, she, they wouldn't want anything to do with me. What's the real you like? But Jesus, we're told here, as the good shepherd, he knows his sheep. And because he knows his sheep, he lays down his life for us. The end result is that we experience eternal life. So this imagery of Jesus as a shepherd is rich. Whether we go to Psalm 23, which was the song we had just before, or the parable maybe that that you can think of if you're familiar with it, of Jesus leaving the 99 in the pen and going back up the mountain to look for the one sheep that was lost. Um, The bottom line is that we have a God who knows us, loves us more than we can imagine. 
And so I've given you a lot of historical information, Old Testament prophetic information. I've broken down John chapter 10 for you. I've challenged you on some points. But if you only walk out of here with one thing on your mind today, then I hope it is this, that Jesus as the good shepherd reminds us above everything else that we have a God who loves us more than we can imagine, who loves us more than we love ourselves even. And I hope you can carry that with you through the week. You see, Jesus loves you enough to die for you. But he takes it even a step further. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I want to give you the gift of eternal life because I love you enough to live with you for eternity. Well, we have that thought going on in our mind that if he really knew me, he wouldn't want anything to do with me. Jesus, God is saying, I made you. I know you. I'll die for you because I want to live with you for eternity. So I want to just leave you with this blessing from 1 Peter chapter 5. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while with him, a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever.